Hello, everyone, to the latest and overdue episode of Leaders Talk. Uh, I've been kind of focused on uh, my own stuff, so uh, I apologize for the delay on the, this uh, new uh, season, I suppose. Uh, Mr. Al-Sawi, uh, Yahya, uh, uh, I met you, um, to everyone who doesn't know, I met him when I had a vacancy in Saudi, in Riyadh. And it was a chief product officer role. And uh, he was one of those few people that when you're interviewing them, and excuse me, so every now and then I'm going to look off to the distance just to get my thoughts in order. But trust me, I'm, I'm with you. So, And if you have any questions at any point, feel free to comment. And we will make sure that we can try to answer every single question as fast as possible. So as I was saying is I met Mr. El-Sawi uh, um, uh, during uh, my interview process and hiring process for a chief product officer role in Riyadh. Uh, of course, he's live with us from Canada. Uh, so that was going to be a big relocation project for him and his family. Um, but while I was interviewing him, it, it didn't feel so much of an interview as it did uh, more of just two friends talking as if I've, you know, I've known him all my life, but it was really just the first time I've ever met him. Um, but he blew my mind in the sense that it's very rare that you come across someone who is a C-suite and still yet so passionate about the technical parts of their work. Uh, but even beyond that, when I asked him about leadership questions, you know, you're going to be a, a chief, uh, a C-suite person in the company. And you got to ask these leadership questions about how are you going to deal with the other C-suite people? How are you going to deal with your team? How do you manage conflicts? How do you think about things strategically? What's the process flow in terms of coordinating strategy across the company? And while we were talking about that, he really had a lot of insights. And for me, I've done leadership coaching before, but I didn't have these insights on how to be a leader on a C-suite level. And that's one reason I love doing executive search is because when you meet these people, you really are fascinated and you're really curious to ask a lot more questions beyond the scope of your, you know, your listed standard questions. And uh, I kind of just let El Sawi in the interview just go off and just, and I, I was just sitting baffled and like taking notes for my, my own personal development. And uh, I'm really grateful, uh, Mr. Sawi, to have you with us today. Uh, I, and I imagine that anyone else that's really a fan of product development and people and leadership uh, that's attending uh, now would also um, be, be grateful for this uh, Leaders Talk episode. Um, but yeah, uh, you've also done, uh, you've also written a new book, which I've been waiting for qu for quite some time. I'm looking forward to reading uh, reading it. I'm still waiting for my signed copy. Um, but uh, you've also been a C-suite person. You've been a public speaker. You've done keynote speeches. Uh, you've got an award from actually a bank in Canada for, for speaking as well. And uh, I would like, you know, just if you don't mind talking about the manifesto and the book and anything else you'd like to talk about. All right. Well, that was a lot. Thank you. It was, um, it was uh, you know, a very humbling uh, introduction. Um, so thank you so much for that. And I'm very grateful to be on um, and I'm looking forward to, to this discussion. So, so a couple of things, and I mean, I can, I can go in different directions here, but maybe a bit on the manifesto. Um, so just speaking of the manifesto, and I know this word manifesto kind of uh, has different meanings for different people. But it's uh, it's really was the um, starting point for me personally uh, as part of the work that that I uh, do uh, on Prevail, which is which is my startup that I can talk about a little bit more later. Uh, to really put down our principles, our beliefs, our intentions, um, and our values on how do we make decisions objectively, uh, and that's how we created this uh, human centric. Uh, manifesto, uh, and we we basically uh, named it empowering the people. Uh, and the manifesto's goal is to help courageous, creative, compassionate change makers, all starting with C, uh, making it easier to remember, uh, to make better decisions and and to help you articulate your values on how do you make these decisions. Uh, I think is critical for any organization. That's a little bit on the manifesto, and we can kind of go through the principles. Um, on the book, I, yes. So, um, published a book, I think it was mid March, uh, March 15th of, uh, this year. 
Um, it was definitely a big step for me because I had this as a project for a really long time. Um, and I was uh, just sitting in a coffee shop last year thinking, I'm going to do it. You know, let, let, let's let's go through the process. Thanks to a lot of support from um, my colleagues uh, and, and other people that I worked with in the past in my network. I uh, received a lot of guidance and, and support in the process. And of course, my, my wife and kids for being patient, uh, publishing it. But uh, the book's name is Product People, uh, A Journal of Laughter and Tears. And uh, I think the main premise, if you look, it's, it's set up. Uh, and I say, I say that at the beginning of the book, but it's basically set up like a, a buffet of sorts where you can um, uh, go to any part of the book. It's quite modular. And read any post on a different topic, uh, depending on what you are interested in. Uh, and the whole idea was for me to combine all my thoughts about product, about design, about leadership, and give a bit of a perspective, but do it in a way that is uh, wouldn't call it satire per se, but it's uh, it's it's a bit of um, applying humor and laughing at yourself to better understand yourself uh, in a way. Nutshell about the book. Um, and the yeah, kind of a, I think it, I think when you're designing a product, it's really important to detach yourself emotionally, uh, but also to be very self-aware. And I think that people really get emotionally invested in their designs and their process. And it kind of takes away from the ability to actually sell on a mass scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, <laughs> you're the, you're the expert. <laughs> It's a common problem. I mean, you hear about this even from the early days of design thinking, and I'm going to use quotes because that's another loaded term, but uh, the idea of being seduced by the problem uh, or being seduced by an idea uh, rather than a problem. Uh, so it's 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 like you fall in love with a certain idea. Um, you kind of love as, uh, as some might say, blind, and you're completely uh, ingrained in it that you don't see anything else. Um, so I think it, it is it is a common theme that you see within product, within design, uh, especially for people that maybe um, cannot reframe their own biases and disconnect and objectively look at something. So I, I, I think it, it definitely exists, what, what you mentioned. So, I mean, I have a follow-up question, but before I do, guys, if you have questions, uh, please comment and we'll get back to you on this session live. We will answer you immediately. Don't hesitate, ask questions if you know anyone's even watching right now. But, <laughs> but of course, uh, you can ask questions at any point. Uh, Yeha is tagged on the event, so he can always respond in the comment later on. But if you have a question right now, ask. Uh, for example, one question I have is that I'm sure most people get really confused on what product design is. And mm -hmm. Uh, and product development. So, uh, you know, there's a big difference between product development, for example, uh, SaaS industry versus FMCG consumer goods, you know? And I think a lot of people get really confused on the difference and maybe you can enlighten us on what that difference is. Yeah, I mean, look, the controversy uh, is, if, if you look at these fields, okay, so you take the word design, very loaded word different meaning for different people. And I think what people fall in and in, into the trap of trying to come up with a universal definition and then imposing it on others and saying, yeah, uh, you know, this is what is deemed to be design. It's a very uh, subjective term. Uh, I myself went with a approach to say, what are the dimensions that you can define this uh, term with and sense make around the word design. But You'll find whether it's LinkedIn, um, you'll find it on uh, forums, in books, where people describe what design is in a very different way. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's the product designer versus UX, UX designer saga or controversy. There is the UX writer versus content designer uh, and the difference between them. There's the product manager, to your point about product, product manager versus product owner. And, uh, and I find that with maturity, you get to understand that it's not necessarily about um, being correct and saying that this is the universal definition everybody shall follow and having these debates around it. But it's more about being aligned on what do you mean when you say product design or when you say um, uh, 
you know, product management, etc. So I'll give you mine, but I needed to put that caveat out there to make sure that uh, I don't fall into the same trap of trying to create this universal definition to hold people uh, to it without necessarily providing the context on the meaning. There's a, there's a good, um, I guess, uh, parallel to this around alignment of meaning where, um, where at least in information architecture, uh, it's commonly said that it's if you own a grocery store, it's better to, um, and you're thinking about where would you place your tomatoes as an example, uh, you might be correct in placing your tomatoes in the fruits section, uh, but it's true wisdom uh, to put them in the vegetable section. And, and, and that's, that's because it really depends on the audience and the associations that they have. So anyways, th that was just something related to meaning alignment that I, that I kind of wanted to share. So for me, uh, the design, thinking about design, um, it's really around unpacking and understanding and discovering a true human need. And I stress the word human need um, and being able to not only articulate what that need is, but come up with ways, not on your own necessarily, but come up with ways and, and facilitate ways where you can meet that need. And yeah. technology becomes an enabler, uh, but it's not the um, it's, it's not a technology trying to find a problem. It's a problem that looks for means to solve it. Where I, where I think product management comes in, so I, I don't use the word development as much, I, I use more product management, is, is how do you orchestrate the value delivery at scale? Uh, so what does that look like? This orchestration skill, and what you're really doing is you're orchestrating expertise on your team. So you, you're, you're kind of understanding the different expertise, but you're not also a hero with a cape that comes in as a product manager that knows the solution to all problems. And I think as an industry, we suffered a lot from that comment that, um, or that saying that the, the product manager is the CEO of a product because it set very different expectations Mm -hmm. on on this idea that the product manager is the hero-like uh, person on the team that knows it all, uh, which I think can be further from the truth. So my brief perspective on these two terms um, based on your question. Excellent. Well, I actually love that. It actually cleared up a lot. You know, we had an issue one time with a client. Uh, and, you know, sometimes we do payroll and we do uh, recruitment and stuff like that. And... Uh, uh, there was a, a big problem that happened based on the word budget mm. and budget can mean anything, you know, it's similarly uh, ambiguous. Uh, so when you say the budget, are you talking about just the basic salary? Are you talking about this? And if it's not clearly defined from the beginning, then you can expect some extra expenses that you weren't expecting, you know, a hundred percent. I think that yeah. that's the root of a lot of subjective um, conversations and debates that people have is that we fail to define the words that we're going to use and what they mean. And we simply assume, and it gets worse the yeah. longer you stay in an organization because you come up also with connotation and loaded meaning about some words and you expect people that are new joiners or people that are external to the organization to have the same context, which is not the case. Yeah. So and that, um, that's, very... that's, I think why when you go to all these multinationals, the first thing they do for the new joiners is they give them a, a welcome kit that includes definitions of commonly used words in the organization and their mm -hmm. definition. And that's just to clear up stuff from day one to make sure that there's no miscommunications. That, that definitely helps, yes. Yeah. Um, so we actually have a very nice person here confirming that they are watching. So thank you, Haifa Yassin. I appreciate you letting us know. Uh, and of course, Osama Kamal, thanks. I assume that we cleared something up for you. So I, uh, I'm happy uh, that we could do that for you. Um, in terms of the manifesto, you mentioned courageous vulnerability. And, and I think that's such a beautiful, uh, beautifully worded uh, description. And I was wondering if you can enlighten us as well. What, what is courageous vulnerability? Yeah, yeah. So, so actually, that's the first principle. It's courageous vulnerability, not pretentious excellence. So, one of the things we try to use is is uh, basically the the idea of distinction in system thinking. So, when you define something, it's one thing to put a boundary around it and say what the thing is, but it helps people to define what this thing is not. So that's why we kind of took those extreme. 
cases on all of the values. But courageous vulnerability um, is is the ability for someone to say, I don't know, to be vulnerable and say that I'm having a difficult day, even if you're a senior leader, leader in an organization, to be able to share some of the problems and your struggles, um, whether it's it's you're having difficulty mentally and it's it's overwhelming um, at work, or it could be something personal, something happening at home uh, with your family and so on. So th this idea of courageous vulnerability is to have the courage to say, I don't know, I'm struggling, um, I, I'm facing this challenge, and to understand <laughs> that it's okay in doing that. Um, yeah. And I, and I think it's kind of like what I did earlier with you before we went live. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I think that that's that's key versus the, uh, I guess on the other extreme where it says pretentious excellence is the idea that I know it all. I'm infallible. I, um, I, I never have any problems because that's the image that I need to project as a leader. And you get some of this uh, fake kind of, um, uh, I don't want to say persona, but like this idea that, oh, I don't share that with my team. I don't share that with my, um, with the people that I work with because um, I need to project an image of this fake excellence and pretend that I've got everything under control the whole time which is uh, because otherwise they're going to look at me and think that, oh, this person is vulnerable. Uh, and, and it actually takes away from the ability to build trust because you trust people when they actually open up and you create an environment. If you do that as a leader, you create an environment for others to also be encouraged to say, you know what? If our leader is sharing this openly and their struggles, then it actually is an invite for me to also have the same courage to be vulnerable in some cases. So, so I think this value is very important, that this principle of courageous vulnerability, uh, not pretentious excellence in building trust, in creating a circle or a space that is safe, psychologically safe for, for people in an organization, uh, but also a good reminder for people that we're all human uh, and you don't need to, uh, you, 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 you need to be yourself authentically yeah. uh, and you need to have the courage to do so. So that's... That's a little bit on on courageous vulnerability. So I mean, there's there's a there's a case that I, I want to bring up in in, in, a, in a very careful way. Um, sure. But you know, sometimes someone is confident and very confident, and and nor, you know, that rare moment where it's actually righteous confidence and deserved confidence. And you know, they'll say they'll see someone doing something that could be done better, and they'll they'll say it openly, like, "Let me handle it. I can do it better." And the problem is what will happen is that people will perceive that as ego, mm -hmm. you know, and, and unrealistic ego, almost like uh, delusional. And um, it's hard to overcome that because you know that it can be done better, but no one's giving you the opportunity to do it. So how would you go about that politically in a way where you're not going to undermine yourself as, as delusional, uh, but, but also get... The, the job done correctly yeah i think uh i think this is this is a common uh leadership challenge and it, it kind of took me to another principle um maybe i'll bring it into the conversation because you spoke about um egos you spoke about being humble yet confident um and the principle is actually humble souls not egocentric narcissists which is kind of the other extreme mm -hmm. uh but I, but I think there is, there is a fine, or, or maybe it's not too fine, but maybe there is a fine line of being confident and being assertive when you're making certain decisions based on what you have, yet still being humble, yet still being uh, able to communicate to people that you, and, and hopefully you do this in an authentic way, uh, you don't think too much of yourself. You know, you don't think that you're above, you're smarter than everybody else, you're, you're better than everybody else. I personally have a, a corporate allergy to to uh, the other extreme. Um, so, so I think there is a way there is a way to do that. And to your question, I think crafting a more beautiful question around what you're trying to say makes all the difference. Because it's one thing to say to someone, "You don't know what you're doing. Let me show you how it's done." Versus versus which could be an extreme case, but versus something uh, like, "Have you thought?" 
of this angle? Or what if you consider that? Or, um, or, or thinking about why, why do you think, uh, what's the purpose behind this thing? And I think if you provide that context and, and you lead with questions, people kind of arrive at uh, their own conclusions and maybe even slightly better ways to do something because they did it their way. And what I find that is that it sticks more because it's experiential knowledge versus you giving the kind of recipe up front to say, look, I've done this before. Here's exactly what you need to do. Follow it to the teeth. And like mm -hmm. everything is already laid out. It takes, takes all the empowerment out of uh, the team. And also um, it, it takes all the experiential learning out of it. So yeah. I think it's a balance of how do you allow for learning to happen and mistakes potentially, which is maybe okay, because after all, that's how people learn, but also do it in a way that is not catastrophic to your business. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it, you, you think through some of the risk that can be, um, you know, mitigated mm -hmm. as that. And I think if you frame your questions in a way and you work on being a better uh, leader through asking better questions, you do a lot, um, a lot of, I think, positive impact on your team and maybe you achieve even better results on the long run. Wow. So I'm not going to lie. I was kind of talking about myself in that situation. And and I think that I'm a lot more aggressive than I should be. Um, and I, I think I need to control that kind of assertiveness. Um, I I am confident, but by no means do I think I'm the best. I, I know for a fact there's a thousand people that can do a thousand things ten times better than I can. Um, but, uh, you know, there was that situation that, you know, I was saying, let me handle this. I can do it. Uh, and they're like, yeah, but you, I've never seen you achieve anything in it before. And I'm like, you know, given the right opportunity and the right timing, I can do it. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that conversation didn't end well for me. Uh, but, you know, I, I was just trying to help at the end of the day. Um, anyways, we have uh, a good uh, comment here. Um, so Haifa, uh, I believe it depends in which space you are leading. Uh, in, co in corporate world, they will eat you if you admit that you're facing a challenge. Absolutely. Uh, based on humble experience, uh, Haifa found that she can be more real in the startup space rather than the corporate mm -hmm. world. Oh, yeah. You know, that's actually a big reason why I've chosen the independent path um, mm -hmm. is because, like I just admitted, I'm very aggressive and assertive. And um, I don't think senior people take that too well. I think it, it, it's, uh, it's definitely a great point. I think the context matters a lot. Um, the question becomes, what are you willing to compromise and how far are you going to uh, maybe change your perspective on your own values to fit in. Um, and I think one of the worst labels that we have around cultural fit um, as a label, it's, uh, it's because there's, there's so many, I guess, prejudice and uh, biases that can go into a label like this. Yeah. Uh, but, but it all comes down to a lot of insecurities that people also might have. So, so, so to the yeah. question, to your comment, it really depends on how secure and confident um, other people and how they feel that they're threatened by your leadership style if it's different because you go against the norm. So there's definitely some truth to that in the corporate world. I'd say like generalizing in general, um, I'm kind of contradicting, but it's the generalization fallacy that there's always exceptions and there's also the willingness of a, of a leadership or of a, of a leader as an individual to um, to make that call to say, how far am I gonna lose my own values or compromise on my own values uh, versus adapt uh, to the culture that I'm operating under? It's always a and challenge. You know, I, I think that you know, in, in our personal lives with our close friends, we take that into consideration. You know, the fact that people might not be. Uh, they might have some insecurities and we take that into consideration when we word things and we confront them about things, but we forget that people are still people in professional mm -hmm. setting, you know, and, yeah. uh, and no matter how someone senior is or how much you look up to them or how much you think they're your hero, I think everyone has insecurities at some level. Uh, I know that, you know, um, I'm facing an expansion of, uh, my family. So that's kind of creating some insecurities for me on a big level. 
Um, but at the same time, you know, I still have to keep that composure. Uh, you know, there's there's this phase uh, in sales uh, where when you're being pressured to get, uh, you know, results as fast as possible, it's it comes off as desperation to the person, to the prospects that you're trying to sell to. And, and, and it does, you know, it, it's obvious people can feel it and they would rather walk away from it. But a misconception that those prospects have is that the people that are in that situation that are pushy to that point, they're normally more willing to put in the work and mm -hmm. to satisfy you because the people that are big and big names and household names and God knows what, there's always a bigger fish in their client list and you're not going to be their top priority ever. Um, mm. So, so it's, a, it's something to consider and to just as well, you know, like we were saying is, is be considerate, even when it's someone from another organization coming towards you. Um, I know it's not easy and I know that, you know, I, I'm kind of currently biased on that, on that, uh, what I just said. Um, but it's, it's, it's true at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> kind of went off on a tangent. Uh, you said, uh, or, or written here in the manifesto, uh, you also mentioned, uh, I love this. I'm sorry. I'm jumping back and forth through things. If that's okay. Oh, no problem, no problem. That's perfect. Um, but you said, um, collaborative creation, not individual her heroics. And yeah. that, mm, I feel like I could, you could write a whole book just on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, that's another principle, and I, and I think it's it's just a tendency that um, like take a look at the first two words, where um, a lot of this comes in. How do we think about control? You know, like um, I think it's an African proverb that says, "If you want to go uh, fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together." And uh, typically, uh, you'd find that a lot of people would rather do things on their own uh, because there's that sense of like uh, heroism. I can solve this problem. I can solve this problem and I, I can do it on my own. I don't need all of these people around me to do it. Um, so that's what I mean by individual heroics. While it gets people maybe credit on the short term, I think it harms them on the long term. Uh, and I've always been for collaborative creation, coming together to create something um, while it might be slower to get go on, on the get go, because you're you really have to bring people aligned uh, to be aligned on the problem you're trying to solve. You're going to have to. Yeah, the team formation stages take some time, you know, exactly, forming, exactly. storming, uh, norming, conforming, I think. Performing. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, so I, I think it's it's uh, it's definitely more difficult, but it's it's for sure more meaningful on the long run, and I, and I and I think this uh, this ability to win people's trust in this collaborative creation naturally brings in more buying in anything that you're doing because if you bring people on a journey, it's it's the baked pie syndrome I call it. You know, like people want to. Can be you part. repeat that? What is that? The baked pie syndrome. Baked pie syndrome, right? Okay. Baked pie, yeah, baked pie. As in, as in, like you know, if you present a baked pie to someone, they're like, "Oh, how come I wasn't part of the the process?" You presented the baked pie at the end, and and you said, "Here's the here's the outcome of this work," but it's it's the journey that brings the investment in. Oh, you didn't ask me to be part of it, mind you. In a lot of cases, people have no idea how to bake a pie, but they just want to be asked. They want to yeah. be asked at the beginning of the process to say, I want your input. I value your input. Um, come together or at least be aware of how we're creating this together. Naturally, they have much more buy-in in the outcome, whether it's a, it's a project, it's a process, it's something that you're creating, than presenting this final outcome at the end and saying, we did all of this and we came up with this solution and here it is, you should buy into it. So collaborative creation, I don't think is just a nice thing to have. But it's also changes um, perspective on the amount of buy-in that you're going to get from people and the trust that you're going to build in the process versus having the individual heroics maybe fits a Wall Street analyst or a lone wolf type approach um, more so than working within product and, and design and I think being a servant leader. Well, I mean, you know, one, one kind of, I guess, um, example that you can have here that's a really... A, a powerful example, in my opinion, 
is that you know there's the there's, there's that lone wolf like you were saying that um you know it goes out to hunt mm-hmm. but the most they can hunt is kind of like a fish or a small rodent but when they go out as a pack they can bring home a deer yes and that's yeah. that's that's that big pie that you're looking for you know and uh i i love this i love this uh this example of avoid individual heroics because you're not going to be bringing bringing home the big pie oh for sure for sure I, I can't remember who said this, but it was um, it was something around uh, no, and it was, it was I, I I think it might have been Virgin, uh, the company, and it was something around uh, not having to deal with genius jerks. That's how they framed it, because you can have very smart people, very good at what they're doing, but nobody want, wants to work with them, uh, and they don't want to collaborate with anybody. So uh, if you're going to tolerate that at the expense of collaboration, catastrophes are going to happen. Trust is going to be ruined. Uh, like the, the proverb that I started with, you're not going to go far. might go fast, but it's going to come down crashing uh, quite quickly. Well, that kind of uh, makes me think about uh, your next uh, kind of principle, which is, you know, simple vocabulary, uh, not uh, convoluted jargon and the reason it, it brings that into mind is because when you're the leader and you're trying to get your team to collaborate you know we get caught up in the corporate jargon of wherever we're working and we start to use these words which people begin to resent these words uh, mm-hmm. like like um you know uh, i'm gonna uh, uh, escalate this uh the word escalate how many people live right now hate the word escalate you know, like yeah. it's, it's like the biggest excuse not to handle a problem, you know, um, yeah, but, yeah. But, but, but you just use that word as an excuse. I'm going to escalate this to my boss. Why not? Or to your boss, which is even like kind of a threat. Um, but when, you, when you're wording things carefully and clearly and concisely and building a process that's easy to follow for everyone and follow up on, then that's when you start to see that team spirit. And I hope I didn't just kind of like give it away, but like, if you don't mind. <laughs> no, I think you touched on, on great things. I mean, simple vocabulary wins every time. In fact, like in storytelling, there's this idea of a transparent vocabulary where someone reads something or consumes a story and it could be even a, a meeting or a conversation that you're having. They're not thinking about the words that you're using because it's so transparent that they're not thinking, oh, what does that word mean anymore? Because now you, you took them away from the subject matter and now you're making them wonder. And in a way, you're making them think like, am I not too smart to understand like what this thing is? And that's where their mind is going. Uh, so they're, they're talking, you know, the, one of the things that I do, at least in written communication, is that I, I put it against a, um, uh, a reader meter, which tells you the level of vocabulary. And typically you want to write at a less than a fifth grader uh, level of vocabulary. And those are the most successful even um, authors that write at that level. So I think it's it's critical what you said. On top of it, just to, just because you mentioned it, now I have to say something about, um, or I want to actually say something about escalation. Uh, it kind of reminds me, and I write about this in, in my book, I call it a corporate tantrum. Uh, and what a corporate tantrum is, and the way I described it is, is that, you know, as, as, as children, uh, children throw all kinds of tantrums to get what they want. They want more screen time. They want more candy. Uh, I think we're all maybe to an extent, maybe not you, Leo, but at least as a child, I've done that. Maybe not on the screen time. It's screen time because we didn't have that as, as uh, frequent as it is now as a problem. But what ends up happening with, with children is that if you cave in or if you, if you give in on that tantrum, um, their brains get rewired and it establishes a connection to say, this is the way I get what I want. This is the way that I can continue to have the thing. And I just have to up the ante every time. So next time my corporate tantrum or my, my tantrum in that case is going to be a little bit uh, more extreme. And you basically taught them that this is the way that happens. And I think in the corporate world, what we end up with is a lot of adults um, that take the same approach 
because maybe they were not very successful at building relationships because it's very challenging sometimes to build a relationship with someone to say, I have a problem with you or maybe a problem with the behavior or a problem with the decision, whatever it is, but I'm going to talk it out with you and we're going to figure out how to do it. And we're going to, maybe if we, if we reach a blocking point, I'm going to bring in uh, different ways where we can solve it, but I'm invested, you know, invested in solving this problem with you versus going at the first obstacle that I face because you didn't do what I want exactly. You didn't act on the request that I wanted to have. And you said like, you need more time or you didn't prioritize the one thing that I need. And I'm, I, I basically threatened via corporate tantrum that I'm basically going to go to your manager and so on. Obviously there's cases where it's like, okay, there's somewhere in between. I'm, I'm not saying like you can generalize and say in some cases, well, you are seeing something that requires that, but I don't think it should even be the, uh, that it shouldn't be the first thing that you can think of as a way to resolve a problem uh, yeah. via escalation. So I think that's no, the- No, it can't, it can't. I mean, yeah. the number of times, um, and I, I know that, you know, I, I have that family business on my background, um, but you know, it doesn't mean that it was always easy. Mm. And um, and it's a, it's a major misconception that uh, that many recruiters in HR have about these people with family business on the background. It's actually 10 times harder. Um, mm because you have to overcome the stigma, uh, you know, in order to get ahead. And, you know, you'd be surprised, um, uh, both, you know, when I was in uh, corporate and multinationals, everywhere, everywhere. I mean, this is just standard human nature. You know, if mom says no, let's go to dad, mm. you know, and, and, and it's making me really think this, this whole part of this, this uh, episode, this conversation, um, is that I feel like the principles of leadership are very similar to the principles of parenting. To an extent, like, yeah. Like you can't, you can't, like mom said, no, I'm gonna go to dad. The dad needs to say, no, what did your mom say? Because leadership mm -hmm. needs to be unified in their actions. And to overcome that is not easy uh, when you know, you're having a power grab uh, on the team, on the leadership team, because you want to get that, um, you know, the behind you supporting you and you do that by doing favors you know what i mean and it's important that you don't play those games and the leadership team needs to be more unified than anyone else in the organization 100 percent. i have to agree with that yes yeah not easy to achieve <laughs> absolutely especially the bigger the organization uh, you know it's harder to manage that and to agree on on a code of conduct within the leadership team yeah, yeah, I think I think that's that's important for sure. Um, it's kind of kind of takes me back to like what we were also talking about, which is which is the um, um, the understanding that you know there isn't necessarily you know what we might get into it, but I guess my, my point is that there isn't necessarily this like uh, superior wisdom that the leadership team has you know like there might be perspective there might be uh insight but i feel that the more you can empower people uh, and bring them into such conversations the less you create these hierarchy of elitism within mm -hmm. companies uh the less you can kind of get this divide of like the leadership team said so as such we need to do it um and it kind of maybe that actually speaks to another value which is more around people's empowerment not authoritarian control because i think that's the that's been the um i don't want to say the de facto but a common thread that you see in a lot of the corporate worlds uh the the authority speaks you know it's the title of the person that gets things done it's not their influence it's not their their true servant leadership or their values or maybe their ideas it's a uh, person so-and-so said so, get it done now uh, because of that. And, and that, that completely demotivates people because it takes, it takes empowerment um, out. And what I mean by empowerment is, is authority and control. Yeah. Uh, and what I mean by, by, by yeah. that is like a, you, get, you give people both authority, but also the responsibility on something because mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't hold people responsible for something but then have no authority to make decisions related to it. So that's that's what I meant by it. 
So empowering others is kind of a tricky business um, because you do have to give them that control in order to empower them. And uh, the problem is that do they have access to enough information about the vision, the direction, the board uh, of directors perspective in order for you to empower them properly without having to micromanage uh, everything they're doing as well? You know, I guess the context falls on you as a leader. So if you if I think it's a good it's a good question, the, the side effect of a leader not sharing their vision and having their people live with that vision and understand it, understanding their strategy, I think is a is a negative side effect of not being able to communicate that. So is it really their responsibility to understand and gather that context if it was never communicated? But but I think what what some people may think of empowerment is that it's not this rogue uh, idea of everybody does whatever you want, like do whatever you want. You're not accountable for anything. Go crazy. Uh, we're an empowering culture. That that for me is not authentic empowerment. No, no. You, you know, authentic empowerment is yes, you will be able to you'll be communicated what the vision is and and understand where did it come from and you'll have the full context you'll understand the outcomes that we're trying to achieve but it's up to you to decide on how you achieve these outcomes and you'll make these decisions but you're also going to be accountable for them and a great example comes through like if you're using um, let's say the okr framework objectives and key results if you set objectives with your teams and you hold them accountable for certain key results around an objective uh, and then giving them the freedom to explore on the different means or initiatives or projects to achieve such objectives, that for me is giving them both responsibility and authority. But it's not the rogue. Uh, maybe maybe empowerment is because I've I've heard this before, especially in financial services. The word empowerment kind of has this idea that it's the wild wild west. You know, everybody's gonna do whatever they want. Gunslinging um, and uh, accountable, exactly, exactly. Chewing yeah. tobacco and spitting <laughs> in a spittoon. Yes, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not a fan of that kind of. <laughs> they didn't have a lot of medicine back then, so no, thank you. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, empowering is is tricky business. I mean, you got to do it right, and like you said, I mean. You need to clearly communicate your expectations, uh, your your requirements, your um, uh, everything. I mean, if you want to give someone freedom of flexibility in the way that they approach something, your expectations need to be very clearly and easily defined. And your guidelines, or let's say rail guards, need to also be clearly defined. Because you don't want someone to go outside your lines, uh, especially when it comes to ethics or legality. So... Mm-hmm. Um, uh yeah empower them sure but you need to you know create the rail guard so they don't go beyond it uh and clearly define it so they understand it and make sure that they understand it what's the object like you said the okr you know it yeah. needs to be what what do you expect from me what do you want from me and it can't mm. just be some general spewed nonsense it has to be very specific measurable smart goals you know mm-hmm. specific mm-hmm. measurable achievable um i forget the relevant and time bound yes yes okay yeah i I agree with you i I call these creative constraints you know like before you start solving a problem or embarking on any effort level with people tell them here's the constraints that we're operating under here's the regulation that we can't cross here's the timelines that we can't miss because of uh whatever it is compliance things that we need to do here's the expectations from our clients so i think leveling with people sharing these creative constraints actually helps people come up with better ways to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I don't believe, you know, I, I think one of the cliche think outside the box is, is, uh, is actually damaging in a way because it's about thinking inside the box of constraints. So yeah. when I give, when I give you the set of constraints, it only makes you more innovative because you have to come up with ways to solve within that. Um, otherwise it's wishful thinking. It's, it's, it's thinking outside what is, um, what is a constraint that you have creatively and putting it that way maintains that tension. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have, it's, it's, it's kind of, it kind of goes into this very closely relates to corporate governance, uh, companies that are switching from family 
it's like corporate governance because from family, you know, as an entrepreneur or someone that built the business from scratch, it's very hard for you to let go of the day to day. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and because you've been so involved in the day to day for 10, 20, 50 years, you know, you get to the point where building processes is not part of your nature. Mm-hmm. But when you, but when you're able to overcome that limitation and create the processes, the guidelines, the OKRs, all these things that are really required for you to be able to successfully switch to corporate governance, uh, you normally see people really struggling to let go. You know, sure. and and then what happens is that third generation gets blamed for 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 not successfully doing a handover, and and. I mean, that's part of it, but also, you know, there was a, a I think it was by Grant uh, something, uh, a quote, and he said, uh, good times uh, create, or sorry, bad times create strong people, mm-hmm. uh, strong people create good times, mm-hmm. and good times create weak people. Mm-hmm. And see. when I heard that, you know, it's it's not necessarily just about the, the good time, the bad time. It's also kind of about the handover. Was it done correctly in a way that someone that's a weak, you know, people uh, can handle it and manage it properly? Um, mm. and, and I think the companies that successfully transition after the third generation to corporate governance are the ones that understand that it's not just about the generational curse, it's also has a big part to do with properly conducting a handover. Yeah. And I, I wonder sometimes just on that, that isn't that the, the case with almost every generation to come, whether in life or in business, where it's like you kids have it better than us these days. Um, you kind of hear that. that all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't understand the struggles that I went through where, you know, like, uh, you know, how many dads would say things like, you know, you don't understand how much, you know, why, why I studied on the lamppost outside my house. And it's like, why, why couldn't you study during the day? But, you know, and so, so the, the, the cliche kind of every generation thinks that it's better than the next one is common, whether it's in business or corporate world. But I find that that's, uh, that's applicable. And then to your point about letting go, it's, uh, it brings a lot of uh, perils on also parenting, which you mentioned earlier. It's the idea of you doing something and then being uh, able to relinquish that control and give it to someone else. And understandably yeah, so. I mean, it's not easy. Yeah. You've, you've, you've spent so much time emotionally in, uh, involved and overcoming so many challenges that, I mean, how do you just let go one day? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's, is it, isn't the saying that you hear sometimes like, this project is my baby. So people, people kind of make it look like it's actually their babies. That's how attached they, they become to a certain product or project, et cetera. So I think uh, definitely true. So you have a subtitle on your new book, and I'm, I'm curious about where that came from. On the new book. Uh, so, so I'm actually writing a new book. Um, you're asking about that, or you're asking I'm talking about, about product, product people, product people, product people, product people. Okay, so yeah, that, there's actually two subtitles, which which makes it even longer. But a journal of laughter and tears uh, is the first one, and it's it was because I went back to my writings during five years, and I basically picked elements of it, um, so I kind of treated it as a journal as if it was uh, me journaling or reflecting in the last five years and putting them all in a book and reframing them and so on. And the reason why it's laughter and tears is, is that it brings kind of the two elements of, yes, we need to laugh at ourselves, but sometimes it's also, um, what is it? It's not black comedy. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's in a way a coping mechanism, right? For mm-hmm. something that is much more soulless that you find in the corporate world and much more, um extreme and maybe different than how some of our natures are hence the balance hoping that um yes people can laugh but not 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 uh hoping that anybody cries but can reflect also on the negative and the positive aspects of um the world that we live in in a in a corporate setting wow 
you know that that, that, that title is very poetic almost uh, uh very creative it shows the level of creativity that you had uh while writing this i was wondering is that the book behind you that is the book behind me yes can you pull that up on the camera just show that to them really quick sure sure i mean i can gonna pick it up here and the link is, to his amazon yeah, uh for this book is in the comments so if anyone's interested in buying it reading it looking at it breathing it uh please check it out i mean this guy put probably you know anywhere between two to three years writing this book so uh and it's from literally laughter and tears so make sure that you uh you know try to support him um Thank can you. people find the, the the manifesto as well? Is there somewhere where we can find the manifesto? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, manifesto at a very high level is on our website on Prevail, um, prevail.website. That's actually the link. It's very easy to to put up there. Um, we we plan to talk more about it as we launch our first product, um, mm -hmm. which comes with its own challenges. But yeah, it's 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 up there, and uh, and of course this this session with elements of it is is also available. Yeah, and of course, I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to send you a copy of this video so you can put that up on Prevail. Um, does anyone have any questions? I'm really curious about doing a headcount here. How many, can you can people just write where you're watching live from and, uh, you know, your favorite part of the discussion so far in the comment section? Uh, I would love, I love to see where people are watching from and, uh, I would appreciate that. Uh, so, Elsawi, what else? What else uh, is uh, would you say is the key highlights in uh, the manifesto? Yeah, I mean, we we spoke about courageous vulnerability, um, not pretentious excellence. We kind of touched on uh, the humble. Sorry, we have we have. Sorry to interrupt. This this has no, been no sitting problem. there for a while, and I thought it was a great compliment to you. Oh, so it's amazing what you mentioned about simple vocabulary, uh, as most of us are trying to show off with our own dictionaries, a very, very inspiring speaker. He is indeed. He has actually uh, won awards uh, for his keynote speaking. You guys are, are making me this is one of the areas where I get challenged by. I, I don't know if, if uh, your audience would maybe benefit from this but you touch on an on a important allergy that i kind of mentioned about being humble and i think like just having praise like this makes it very challenging so i actually developed ways <laughs> on humbling myself uh, that depends of course on the context and the culture you go in but maybe that's or quickly share three tips that i found useful uh one is a little bit extreme depending on uh where you're at but i think remembering death in general helps remembering that you're not going to be here forever mm. uh, and whether you can participate in ceremonies around that um i think changes your perspective completely completely yeah. on things the other one that that i get the weird looks about that i do when i get praised like this and and thank you but now i, I have to invest in that a little bit um is i know i know some people might think this is weird but cleaning public washrooms uh that works you don't need to do it in like, you know, like an official manner. Think about it exactly. But uh, we have uh, personally, I have a local second cup, which is a, a chain around. Mm -hmm. And whenever I feel too much of myself, that's my own exercise to kind of bring you down to this uh, humbleness. humbleness and that level to to really break that ego. Because if you don't tame that ego, it's just natural within all of us. Well, taming uh, that ego is actually another principle, isn't it? Yes. Yes. So, so, um, yes. So, so that's, that's, uh, that, that I think is, is very important that just taming your ego and going back to the humble souls, not egocentric narcissist as a, as a principle, mm -hmm. but these tips kind of go hand in hand because it might not come naturally to people on what do I need to do to, um, to do this. So I think it, it's very, very important to keep it in check. Um, but anyways, I digress. So that, that was another, uh, comment related to it. I think we covered a lot of the manifesto and, and I'm just looking at the time. I think the only one that we kind of maybe, um, uh, I, I, I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit was, uh, I'm hoping just, it's the one I think it is. 
Well, well, why don't you go with the one you think it is? Because I, I, I want to make. I honestly want to talk about shared accountability and possessive control. Okay, great, great. Um, is that it? Well, I was debating between that one and um, and and the other one around uh, human impact, not short-sighted profits. But I mm -hmm. think I think they're equally valuable. So shared account. Yeah. We can go over a little bit if 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 need be, but but you know let, let's let's talk about shared accountability because I have very strong opinions about shared ac accountability. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I mean, again, it paints a, a picture of extreme here where we can, and I think there is there is a clear or maybe not very clear difference between accountability and responsibility. I think responsibility comes from within. I I can be responsible for something, and I can take responsibility. But that comes from the individual versus accountabilities is usually something that you hold people to, right? You say, I'm holding you accountable to something. Um, so there's that slight difference, although I, I hear it being interchangeable. You know, a lot of people say, I'm accountable, I'm responsible, et cetera. And, you know, I don't want to get into a racy chart and describe like what, what the difference between them are uh, is, but but I, at a very high level, I think what, what this principle is is trying to convey is that we're all in this together, and um, the idea of sharing the accountability when something um, on on an effort that we're doing is very important, versus the other extreme is being able to have all the control in the world and being possessive around it. And I think that that also speaks to the maturity of the leader that you're dealing with because possessive control on people, on actions, on decisions doesn't scale. It really doesn't scale. You know, it, even if you're thinking about you as a leader, um, there's lots of sayings that we can have around this, but the idea that you want to be everywhere, solve every problem, make every decision, uh, and being controlled the whole time simply doesn't scale. You know, mm -hmm. so investing in people's thinking, although you'd hear people say sometimes it's a waste of time, I don't want to invest in making people better, is the only way in my mind that you can scale up an organization. If you don't scale the thinking, then there is no hope for you to make better decisions and build better products and design better services or achieve anything worthwhile uh, because you didn't give people. Uh, a way to fish you've been you know you're just focused on uh, what is the saying like give, give them a fish they, they'll have lunch for one day or teaching them how to fish they can eat for life so so i i'm always baffled by uh, how little some corporations invest in making people better thinkers and makers um because they're not investing on the long term. So that's that I think is is very challenging. And that's what this principle is really about. What do you think if if you know someone is constantly being singled out and being asked to hold himself accountable? Like what would that do to that person? If it's just I, that I, person. <laughs> if it's just that person. So so I guess the context would matter. So I guess they they're being told by others that they need to be held accountable. Well, yeah, I mean, so there's situations where, you know, someone becomes the scapegoat to almost every problem, mm. you know, whether they're involved or not. So I can imagine that that can re result, you know, in, in a situation where that person will eventually walk away. Mm. You know? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, maybe what's, what's not mentioned there is that shared accountability needs to come from uh, needs to be authentic as well so i can't i can't hold someone accountable if they had nothing to do it's 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 like putting blame now rather than yeah. accountability on someone that had no control which goes back to empowerment and perhaps uh no autonomy to make certain decisions um and that's where you end up in the situation or depending on the context maybe that's another way for people to say i don't trust the outcomes that you're in i don't trust uh, so it might be a a coverted way for them to describe that they don't trust this person but of course it, it's got to be authentic it's got to be authentic if you're going to hold someone accountable then it, you you have to give them that authority um you mentioned the word scapegoat so i i would 
definitely not support a situation like that because it's just deflecting uh, yeah. responsibility, if anything. Well, you know, every every situation that I've ever faced as HR, um, I've had, you know, every, especially when you're talking about like uh, dealing with conflict resolution, um, is that what I normally find is that it, it's never just one person that's accountable. It's never in every mm -hmm. single situation. I've never seen one situation where it's just one person who's at fault. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think people tend to look blame for the end result and that's it rather than blaming for the things that led to the root problems that led to the result. Yeah, I think it, it's also a matter of perspective of what do you want to do after, right? Because I mean, there, there's a saying that you hear sometimes in the corporate world around like, who whose neck is it going to be that I'm going to choke if something goes wrong, which I think is a very damaging, uh, I that. <laughs> very damaging. And I mean, people people talk about it in a in a kind of uh, not non-literal sense, of course. Mm -hmm. But but I think language and the words that we use go by going back to vocabulary uh, really affects how we think about things and and those mm -hmm. those elements have some truth to it. So is the goal to blame, or is the goal to improve? And I think depending on the perspective, um, it changes everything. Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, what I what I like about uh, you know. Um, accountability for the purpose of improvement and, and, and forward move, you know, momentum is that that kind of attitude would actually encourage people to be more honest and transparent. Uh, because right now, I mean, you see a lot of companies where people are hiding their mistakes mm -hmm. and, and they're not necessarily getting resolved. So what's happening is you're, you're, you're burying a mountain's worth of problems under the rug and it's it's creating an obvious sore image to the public yeah and, and, and maybe because they were not courageous to vulnerably admit which goes back to where we started um I, look i i messed up on this thing or i didn't consider this thing and mm -hmm. and i i want to make it better i want to solve this problem and so on maybe the space that was that was there for them was not a safe space for them to own up to it so exactly what what you say happens you know i'm gonna Absolutely. hide it from people i'm gonna you know pretend to be excellent so pretentious excellence is what happens and and reality oh, oh wow all of that right yeah. so we went full yeah, circle i guess you just, you just kind of threw a curveball there i wasn't expecting you to go in that direction nice <laughs> <laughs> all right do you have do you have more time are you in a hurry uh i have another uh eight minutes but i have to be out at 2 10 my local time so eight minutes 10 after the hour well well let's try to let's try to cover um you know that that last uh principle you wanted to talk about sure sure so um so we were talking about human impact not short-sighted profits mm -hmm. uh i think this is a very very uh not just challenging one to have but I think short-termism in general is is a common syndrome you see in a lot of companies, whether corporate or or not. But it's the idea of chasing the quarter. When I get results for this quarter, quarter, and as a result, I take a lot of shortcuts. I incur a lot of technical debt, design debt, experience debt, all kinds of at least in the world of product. Um, why? Because that's what I get rewarded on. I get rewarded on these short-term results, right? uh it's it's very uh immediate and reactive and as a result if you don't get this perspective um around what are the longer term goals that you have or the human impact that you can create um gets lost so i think that the goal of this principle is to say it's human impact first the side effect of of course, bringing in the profits is is key because that's what you need to survive. I'm not, I'm not downgrading that. Or I'm not saying like, oh, you know, just solve solve the problem at whatever cost and forget about your bottom line. Absolutely not. But I'm 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 trying to say in terms of priorities, uh, what should you focus on first? Because if you focus on short sighted profits, you're going to make a lot of subpar decisions because you never actually focused on the need. 
who are you solving this problem for? What kind of impact are you going to make on the humans, whether they're customers that you have or employees that you have? So it takes you to a completely different direction that on the long run, it becomes counterintuitive. Uh, although a lot of people that practice this short-termism think that they're um, really achieving uh, their goals. But it's it's a bit of that hamster wheel effect. Wow. Like, I just want to run. I want to survive this quarter and I want to deliver on the results. I can't think of a human impact, but it harms you on the long run. So that's that's what wow. this is about. Wow. I mean, I, I, while, while you were talking, I, I both saw it from a leader's perspective and an employee perspective at the same time. And, and uh, it blew my mind. I'm not going to lie. You know, when you, when, you, when you think about an employee that's being pressured to get uh, long, you know, short-term results when their role is more strategic, uh, I can imagine the amount of pressure and frustration from both the leader perspective and the employee perspective. But as you said, it goes back to setting expectations and OKRs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you hire someone in a strategic role if you expect short-term results? A hundred percent, hundred percent, and I think it does it does uh, so much damage on on motivation when it comes to employees because if you're not, you know, you wake up in the morning. There, there's always the question of what wakes you up in the morning, but what what keeps you up at night? And it's typically for purpose-driven people that want to work on a meaningful mission or have a meaningful impact on the world, changing the world to become a better place. I know it sounds rosy. And idealistic, but I mean, I'm one of those people. I mean, of course, after three years of trying, my expectations have been lowered (laughs) significantly. (laughs) But I think that there there is that aspect of like, how do you motivate people if they don't see the the long-term human impact? And if, if if you're simply um asking them to report on the numbers and chase the numbers without understanding the impact they make in the world especially if they're meaning driven and they're purpose driven so it, it does a big difference on on the culture that you create excellent you know i know you gotta go so i'm gonna wrap this up really quick i really appreciate your time uh everyone ladies and gentlemen uh if you're still live with us el sawi yahya this is one of the, um, in my opinion, amazing chief uh, product you. officers uh, from around the world. Uh, and he is a global kind of citizen as well. And, um, uh, you know, don't forget Amazon product people. Check it out. You know, you can read the summary and decide whether you want to buy it or download it or whatever. But uh, definitely worth checking out at least. Thank you for having me, Leo, and and thanks for the plug around the book. And thanks for the very meaningful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. So every single time we have a chat, I feel like there's someone out there that understands me and gets me as well. So thank you. (laughs) I hope I continue to be that person and happy to have more chats in the future. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for attending. We'll see you on the next episode. All right. Thank you. Take care.